And please, uh, would you please pray with me? Uh, Lord, we, uh, man, it's just six verses, but there's a lot here. Uh, in fact, it is too much uh, for, um, you know, uh, for any kind of human being to convey to the heart. And so, Lord, I'm just mindful uh, that we carry this treasure in jars of clay. The, the, the contents of that jar are yours. Uh, Lord, would you convey them to our hearts? Would you prevail upon us, Holy Spirit, to the end that you would deepen conviction or maybe even bring conviction for the very first time of, of the power and the potency of the cross, which is our redemption, which is our salvation. Lord, it is here. And so, Lord, make us attentive where we might otherwise be distracted. Uh, Lord, give us a fresh uh, desire to um, hear the gospel preached, even if we've heard it hundreds of times before, that it would um, take purchase in the heart, uh, Lord, in a way that would uh, bring you glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, back in the 80s, there was a movie that came out of South Africa that became kind of a global phenomenon called The Gods Must Be Crazy. It was about this African Hwanzi tribesman uh, going about his business in the Kalahari Desert, very much in the same way that his ancestors had for thousands of years before him, until suddenly uh, a glass Coke bottle falls out of the sky and lands in front of him unbroken. And, and, and you know, it turns out a, a, a small plane pilot was flying by and had finished his Coke and just tossed it out the window. Uh, but the tribesmen had never seen anything like this. And, and he knew that since it came from the sky, it was a present from the gods. And, and from there, you know, the story centers around this Coke bottle, which brings all kinds of disruption and change to a whole people uh, who, you know, before had had a very settled life for thousands of years. Uh, it's really a story of life being disrupted by a common thing which comes to be regarded as a precious and powerful thing. Now, I would suggest just here at the start that the passage we're looking at this morning has come, by, come to be by many of us, especially in the West, nearly the opposite kind of story. That is to say, it's an account of what actually in reality is precious and powerful but has come to be regarded too readily and too easily by too many of us as common. Uh, so that for many of us, life goes on uninterrupted and undisrupted. We come to this place in the gospel after Jesus' trials, after his beatings, after the mockery, uh, where he is actually nailed to the cross. Uh, and it, it, it seems that all is left is for Jesus to die. But, but we're going to look at this passage, at this text this morning that tells us more than, than this, much more than the simple fact that Jesus died, but answers the question of why he had to die. So we're going to explore that question of why did Jesus have to die by looking at four successive events that occur in this passage uh, that are all connected to the cross of Jesus. The first is a cover of darkness. The second is a cry the third is a curtain, and fourthly, a confession. Uh, the text begins with darkness, a cover of darkness descending over all the land. And, and, you know, as you might imagine, there's been plenty of attempts to explain the darkness as something like a natural phenomenon, like Jesus' crucifixion just happened 
to coincide with a, a sandstorm or an especially cloudy day or an eclipse. But in fact, uh, there is no natural explanation for this darkness because what we're looking at here is a supernatural darkness. Uh, it's helpful to consider this through the lens of another place in the Bible where darkness descended in very much the same way in the book of Exodus. Uh, in that account, uh, if you're familiar at all with uh, the book of Exodus, God uh, determines to send 10 plagues upon Egypt uh, to, for, for really two reasons, to set his people free and so that Egypt would know that he is Lord. And it was the ninth, the penultimate plague, the one preceding the final one, in which death would fall upon every home in the land, that God brought darkness. Darkness over all the land. The, the, this darkness during the day preceded the kind of imminent and ultimate judgment that would arrive in that tenth and final plague. That, that singular event in which death, to be clear, would visit every household. A visitation that would, in fact, bring deliverance to everyone, but in one of two ways. You would either be delivered into the freedom and life under the protection of the blood of the Lamb, or you would be delivered into judgment and death outside of the covering of the blood of the Lamb. One way or another, you're getting delivered in, uh, into life and freedom or into judgment and death. The darkness over all the land, in fact, answers the question of who is God judging? And the answer to that is everyone. The, the only question is, what, how, what will you do when the judgment comes? Will you access God's gracious and appointed means of salvation and be saved or Will you sit in your house imagining that you can save yourself so that the deeper darkness of death swallows you up? Now, now that's a lot to take in, okay? I get that. So hold on to that thought for a minute because we're going to come back to it. But for now, we need to understand the darkness as the event that precedes the judgment, that presages it so that we can understand, we, we have to see that so that we can understand the cascade of events that come after the darkness. Mark actually tells us the exact moment the darkness lifted. He says it happened in the ninth hour, and coinciding with that exact moment, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. And, and I just, you know, before we look at what, exactly what Jesus cried out, I, I think it's helpful to think about what he didn't cry out. Of course, he is in kind of unfathomable physical pain. Humanity has never conceived of a more painful way to slowly kill a person than crucifixion. And Jesus is enduring this as a man who has already been severely beaten, who has had his back scourged, who has had a crown of thorns jammed on his head, and who is presently hanging uh, from the cross, uh, from seven to nine inch nails that have been driven through his wrists and his feet. And yet, you know, he doesn't cry out the agony. He doesn't cry out, you know, my back, my hands, my feet, my head. And of course, then there's the emotional reality of what he's enduring. He has been abandoned by those who have been closest to him. He has been betrayed by his own people. He has been condemned as guilty even though he is innocent. But he doesn't cry out 
the injustice. Or, you know, my family, or my friends, or my people, or my mom. He is suspended on the cross in the agony of forsakenness and physical torment, but his cry is not that of physical anguish or personal abandonment. Instead, the first two words out of his mouth are, My God. That cry indicates clearly that Jesus is experiencing on the cross something, if you can even believe it, more profound than physical pain and more penetrating than emotional anguish. You see, in those two words, Jesus really summons, I think, from the center of his, his suffering self, the grammar of sonship and the grammar of Scripture. He, he is drawing on that which is deepest in him, the depths of relationship and intimacy, the bonds of deep affection with his Father that I, you know, we can hardly fathom. You know, I mean, this, all kind of illustrations fall far short at this moment, but, you know, I, I was mindful of a friend I have uh, who, who used to kind of talk about his children in this funny way. He, he would rarely, you know, I used to work with his daughter whose name was Sarah, and he would really just talk about Sarah. He would very often say, say our Sarah you know, my Sarah. You know, in other words, he, he, he would talk of her not just as a daughter, but as something like a, a treasure to him and his wife. It gives you a little bit of a flavor of what's going on when Jesus cries out, my God. You know, not merely as his father, but as his treasure. You know, this is not something that Jesus is just blurting out, but again, it's the language of sonship and also of Scripture. He's quoting the Bible here. He's drawing from the first verse of Psalm 22, and in fact, I think it's very likely that he was in this hour of death as he's, in, as he's enduring this. He's, he's probably reciting the entirety of that psalm, you know, clinging to God's Word, plunging into it, even as he's being plunged into that which is unimaginable for us. You know, and so coming from Jesus, you know, we, we, we can't really fathom the devastation he's enduring here because whatever our relational connections may be, however old they may be, however deep they may go, they are as nothing compared to the infinite and eternal fathoms of relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga described, it in this, described that relationship in this way, he says, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each harbors the other at the center of his being in constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and encircles the other. So creation is neither a necessity nor an accident. Instead, given God's interior life that overflows with regards for other, we might say that creation is an act that was fitting for God. In creation, God graciously made room in the universe for other kinds of beings. God's splendor, His glory becomes clearer when we, whenever the Son of God powerfully spins Himself in order to cause others to flourish. Jesus Christ's pattern of life in the world reproduces the inner life of God. And on the cross, what we're bearing witness to is, here is the forsakenness of Jesus because of the fracturing of relationship with his father, allowing himself 
to be poured out to the full, to be judged. The Father's back not being so much turned on him, but turned from him, but, but the Father turning on him with wrath for sin that should have fallen upon us. Suffering in that way, pouring out, being poured out in that way so that he might cause others to flourish. So to be clear, the question of why have you forsaken me, I want to be clear, that question does not go unanswered in our text. It begins, it begins, it has begun to be answered even before he cries out, and this is where it's helpful, again, to kind of consider that darkness again, you know, which I think, in, in, in a, you know, if I can put it this way, we can sort of understand the darkness more clearly at this point. You, you can't really understand the darkness until you begin to see the light. You know, we take the light for granted in New Mexico for sure. I mean, since I've lived here, I mean, you know, the, the once every six week cloudy day, you know, feels like I'm just getting ripped off. You know, like it's this great injustice. Where's my sunshine? You know, so of all people, we sort of give light hardly a second thought. But, but in fact, it's the light that sets the pattern for all of life. It gets us going in the morning. It takes us through the day. And when it goes away, you know, we sleep and we start all over, right? But, but, but what if? You know, if you can imagine, I mean, what if there were no light and only darkness? What would life be like then? What would it look like to dwell in that? Well, interestingly, there's been actual research into this question uh, back, uh, you know, about the question of what would happen to a human being if you put them in complete darkness for a sustained period of time. There was a famous study back in the mid-60s where two cave explorers by the name of Josie Lores and Antoine Sinney volunteered to test the effects of living in total darkness for a long period of time, for months. I suppose they thought, you know, because they're cave explorers, they could sort of handle it. So they agreed to live alone completely uh, in a completely darkened cave over a period of months to test the effects of total darkness and isolation. And, and during that time, the only people who would have contact with them would be the occasional researcher uh, tracking a sleeping pattern or an eating habit or a vital sign. And they agreed to not be told anything about the outside world, including the passing of time. And the study surfaced some disturbing discoveries. The first thing they discovered was, was that it was deeply disorienting. There were occasions in which these men would sleep for as many as 30 hours at a time, only to wake up thinking they'd taken a short nap. Uh, they began to unravel mentally. They began to experience radical emotional swings, paranoia, even hallucinations. They became so desperate for companionship that they tried to capture cave rats just for the comfort of having a living thing near them. The study ended with the conclusion that the experience of sustained total physical darkness produced profound dis disorientation and dehumanizing dysphoria. And here's why I get into all that. When the Bible describes darkness, it is describing our natural spiritual state outside of Christ. It's describing a state of being in which we have in ourselves no capacity to see where we are or where we're going or what is true about anything, even ourselves. It is saying that to attempt 
to live apart from the light of God's grace is an existence of profound disorientation and disintegration and dehumanization. You can't overstate the power of the truth being expressed in the Bible when it says that we dwell in darkness, but God is the light. As it does in John's gospel, that the coming of the light into the world is described as light. The coming of Jesus into the world is described as light coming into darkness. That he is luminous, that his truth shines forth, that he is the sun. That means that he in himself is the light who gives life where there was only disorientation and degradation and death as he reveals the truth about not just himself, but about us and about the world. You know, there's a great line. We just sang it a few, you know, not even a month ago uh, from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley. Light and life to all he brings. C.S. Lewis captured it well when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Our earth is ordered and oriented around the sun, and human beings, God's image bearers, are also designed to orbit. Not around ourselves, not in the chaos of our darkness, but around Him as the light. And, you know, many of us could tell the story if we can sort of conceive of it in these terms. We've known the bitterness of orienting our orbit around other things. Even things that may be good, you know, orbiting around a relationship, orbiting yourself around a career or a child or your recreation or your physical beauty or your financial stability. You know, some of us may have even sort of gotten hold for what we've been striving so hard to, 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 to get a hold of, only to find that once we get a hold of it, it doesn't satisfy us in the way we had hoped. There's this funny thing that happens when you pursue more money You feel like you need more. The more you pursue beauty, the uglier you feel. The more you make your child the center of your life, the more you crush them with your expectations. The more you build your life around your career, the more insecure you feel in your work. I mean, have you experienced that? The bitterness of that, the angst, the anger, the disappointment, the fear? The reason you and I experienced that is we weren't made to live that way. We were not made to orbit around the lesser lights, around this little flame of a relationship, this little spark of a child, this little flare of getting a little bit more money. We were made for the sun, made to live with him as our center so that all the lesser lights might take their place. So it can never be said that Jesus merely went to the cross as an example of sacrificial love or as an unfortunate victim to the schemes of bad people. He went there out of obedience to the Father to be plunged into the complete darkness that was ours and should have been ours forever so that he might bring us into the light and into life. He died the death we should have died. He took the judgment we should have taken. He endured the consequences that rightly belonged to us so that, he, so that we could be brought out of the deep, dark cave of our darkness and into light and life. That's what's going on here. And then, you know, we come to this moment when Jesus takes his last breath. 
Immediately following that moment, Mark reports of something that happened over in the temple. Uh, he says that the court, that the, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, a lot of us have curtains in our homes. We, you know, they're largely there, to, you know, kind of for decorative purposes or to block out the light. But this curtain is very different. Don't think of it as that kind of curtain. This curtain wasn't there to block out light. It was there to bar entry. It was, it was more wall than fabric. Heavy curtain. And the law stipulated that it would be there to serve as a barrier between this place and the temple called the Holy of Holies where the glory of God dwelled and all the other parts of the temple where, where all the other people dwelled. It was there for one thing and one thing only, and that was to separate the people from the presence of God, not because God wanted nothing to do with his people, but, but really for their own benefit, because, you know, for your own protection, because mortal flesh cannot just waltz in to the glory, unprotected into the blazing sun of God's holiness, and, and imagine that that is some, in some ways survivable. Of course, there was one exception. Once a year, on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest person among the people, the high priest from the holiest people, the Jews, would go in to bring a blood sacrifice as an atonement for the sins of the people. So much in the way that the people of Israel were protected from judgment by the blood, so would be the priest as the representative of God's people. You see, that curtain was not only a heavy and thick barrier, it was, it was something of a heavy and thick symbol. It just made a powerful point to all of God's people and to all the world. God has been saying something for a long, long time with that temple curtain, and that is that no one in spiritual darkness, which is everyone, can make their way into that presence on their own. Even the once-a-year provision of the holiest man from the holiest people on the holiest day for the holiest of purposes, you know, even that wasn't exactly a sure thing. You know, they still tied a rope around his waist in case he went in there and the experience struck him dead so that the people on the outside could drag out the corpse rather than having to go in and become a corpse themselves. Jesus cries out from the terror of the cross, and God cries out from this torn curtain. He, he tells us something in this singular act, what the death of his beloved son Jesus has accomplished. And that is that God himself has made for us a way in, into his presence. He tells us that he and he alone can do that. Tearing a curtain like this would be impossible for anyone. You've got as much chance of doing that as, as tearing you know, a New York City phone book in two, if they even make those things anymore. But as important as the fact that that it was torn is how it was torn, it was torn, Mark tells us, from top to bottom. It, it, it in other words, showed the direction of our redemption. It made clear that God did it, that heaven has opened the barrier that was separating sinful human beings from their holy God. And I want to be clear, I want to just refine this language a little bit. It's not that he's done this for everyone, but he has done it for anyone. Anyone can come into his presence by faith. And we see this because Mark shows us 
the very first person who's brought out of the darkness into the light by putting their faith in Jesus. And it is the most unlikely person you can imagine in this whole scene. It's the centurion. And Mark's intent that we not only know that he got into God's presence by faith, but how he did. And in one sense, I just want to say it's absurdly simple. He looks at Jesus on the cross. He listens to Jesus on the cross. He believes in Jesus on the cross. He gets it, and he gets in immediately, confessing by confessing his face that surely this man was the Son of God. Now, in that statement, there's a connection. We are immediately connected back to the very beginning of this gospel, Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that one truth declared so plainly at the start of the story is the very same truth that's so readily missed by so many. It was missed in Jesus' trials before the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. His, his sonship of God is asserted there, not as, a, as an item of adoration, but as a basis of accusation. An accusation that elicits mockery, both from the, the people and their priests, and it, and, it, and it comes to be the reason he's actually killed. So it's striking that at the actual moment of his death, he comes to be adored and worshipped as the Son of God, not by any of those religious leaders or even one of Jesus' followers, but by this centurion, this Roman soldier. I just want to be clear, lest we valorize this man overly. There is nothing to commend him. In fact, there is much to condemn him. For starters, this is not someone who knew anything about the Bible or even had the slightest inkling of seeing, you know, God's story unfolded in all the scriptures that pointed to Jesus the Messiah. And, and, and to be clear, too, he is not a passive observer in the execution of Jesus. The only reason he is here is because he is very much complicit in it. You didn't become a centurion by going to some fancy military academy so that you'd get your, you know, officer commission. You became a centurion by rising through the ranks by showing that you were not merely capable, but you were effective and enthusiastic to inflict the full measure of the power that had been entrusted you to do harm to anyone who would dare challenge Rome. You came to be a centurion by being a killer in the cause of Rome, in the cause of a different kingdom altogether. This is a person whose story, in other words, is oppression. It is not open-mindedness. This is someone who had seen a lot of people die. Someone who had heard dozens, maybe hundreds of final cries before life finally left the body, probably very often from crosses. And Mark tells us nothing about his thought process, his reasoning, or anything else. He only tells us that when Jesus cried out and when Jesus died, this centurion was there to hear that cry and witness that death, and he heard from Jesus and saw in Jesus something unique, something that penetrated through his darkness, through his hardness. He saw in Jesus' death something utterly unique that caused him to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. What did he see? I'll tell you what I think he saw. And it's something that I think we all must see. 
And that is that Jesus is someone who experienced death, not just for himself, but for others. That Jesus cried out not just for himself, but to his Father. He allowed that relationship to be fractured in order that we would flourish knowing the Father. Somehow that centurion glimpsed the intimacy and peered into the depths of a person, not merely clinging to his own story of suffering, but that this suffering was connected to something far, far greater. The love of God and the love for people like him. Killers. He witnessed in his death something beyond an experience of agony, but an undying affection for those for whom he came to die that they might live. And that centurion's confession, it's a remarkable moment in the gospel. Here, right at its end, it marks the first time a human being in their right mind identifies Jesus as he truly is, with full conviction of faith as the Son of God. It's just an astonishing thing, isn't it? In this particular moment, Jesus' death hasn't gone beyond that hill upon which he was executed, and yet the effectiveness of it has traveled an infinite distance from the loving, light-filled heart of God into the darkness of a person who is as far from God as you can ever imagine. This isn't a moment where a centurion sort of gets God. It's one in which God has gotten a centurion. He's reached out to, that, to a person who is otherwise condemned and unreachable, walking in darkness. Here's the good news. If the gospel can reach and transform someone like him, it can reach and transform anyone. Anyone can get in. No demands are made of him. There's no hint of this man needing to suffer himself for all he's done. There's no imperative that, that he you know, cry out to God for mercy or that he straighten out his moral compass or atone for all his crimes, or realign all his loyalties or get rid of all his bad habits and build good habits and quit the Roman Empire or anything else. It's just light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Jesus suffered and he was plunged into the ultimate darkness. He cried out and he gave up his life so that we would be saved, so that we would be plucked out of darkness, that we would cry out, not as we should have in agony, but in adoration to the gracious God who hasn't demanded my life of me, but delivers life through the perfect life and satisfactory death of his beloved son. It's a rescue. The centurion saw that, he heard that, received that, and it melted him, melted his heart. Because God closed an infinite distance between them. It sealed to his heart the deeper truth that Jesus didn't, didn't die like everyone else died, but that Jesus died for him. The centurion heard his cry. He witnessed the greatest act of God's love, his power, and his justice in all of history. You know, it's interesting. Other people heard the cry. Mark tells us that, that, that you know, they heard it, but not in the same way. You know, some said, you know, well, maybe he's crying out for Elijah. You know, they're sort of drawing from this sort of semi-superstitious expectation that Elijah would show up preceding the coming of the Messiah. But the centurion was the only one who really heard it. It was life for him. So I just think it puts the question to us. You know, what do you hear? 
from Jesus today. Do you hear the good news that this was no ordinary death? Do, 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 you, do you hear and do you see that, 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 that we have nothing to offer him, nothing to commend ourselves, nothing to bring, everything to condemn us? Can you hear the good news that Jesus was plunged into the darkness, that he was willing to be condemned, that we might be commended before the Father? As holy beloved, as righteous, as clean, as, as those who can now enter into the Holy of Holies? Can you hear the good news that he was willing to have infinite, eternally satisfying love of the Father fractured for your flourishing and for mine? that melt you? Move you to faith? Will it move you to receive reconciliation from God and, and even maybe pursue it with others? Can, can it take you off of your meteoric, disorienting, and deadly trajectory through the darkness that's keeping you from knowing God and even knowing yourself so that you would no longer orbit around a lesser light, but that you would orbit around the sun? This meal attests to the truth of that, this, that, that at the heart of Jesus' death is that, as he said, this is for you. It's for you. Let's remember that as we come to the table, not minimizing the great cost of our redemption, but letting it melt us as we come to this meal. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Jesus, thank you for your Thank you for your deep, deep love for us. It's certainly a love that we gain an apprehension of through the scriptures. Uh, but Lord, which is of a magnitude that we in this life will never be able to have a comprehension. But you give us such grace in this meal. You know that we are creatures of flesh and blood, of wandering, creatures with wounds, creatures with little to commend us, even if we imagine we've, you know, done pretty well. But Jesus, you, you were not content to, to give us kind of a half-hearted redemption, but you have given us a full one so that we can say, uh, we can enter your presence, not with ropes tied around our waist, but joyfully coming with a full reconciliation to the Father with no distance between us, but in fact, we now are the beneficiaries of intimacy as your children, as, as those who've received an adoption so that we can say, Abba, Father. And we come to your table. We come to the heart of your home in that sense, where we are welcomed because of this great redemptive work of Jesus to the end that we would eat it and drink it, that we would let it sink really deep, viscerally, that we would enjoy this meal, this this knowing that you are present in it and at work and as a foretaste of the life to come where we will, Lord, with sin no more. Can we even imagine that? Sin utterly gone in fellowship with you, uh, feasting upon the richest affair. Lord, would we um, take an, have some apprehension of that as we come with faith uh, because you are a great Savior, a great Savior. Thank you for the gospel. Meet us as we gather here together. In Jesus' name, amen.